Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. Life is story. And our lives are a series of stories. And like all good stories, there are heroes and there are villains. And like all good stories, there's conflict and hopefully resolution. In looking at the stories of our lives, particularly the the cast of characters, sometimes it's difficult for us to identify who the heroes are and who the villains are. Now, I dare say that most of the time in a story that we are writing about our own lives, we cast ourselves in the role of the hero. But what about those times when we're the villains? What about those times when we know that there's something that we should be doing, but we are not doing it? Are we the hero or are we the villain? Or what about those times when we're doing something that we know we should not be doing? Are we the hero or are we the villain? And who is the ultimate hero of our lives? And who's the ultimate villain? Ah, the plot thickens. And in every good story, when the plot thickens, we need to drill down and ask some hard questions. The story of Jesus' life here on earth is no different. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. The plot thickens in the story of Jesus' earthly ministry with the resurrection of Lazarus. As Jesus proclaims to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Depends on who the hero of your story is. They take Jesus when he asks, where have you laid him? To a tomb. A destination, as far as they could see. Life for Lazarus, as they knew and understood it was over. And Jesus wept. We talked about this last week. He weeps for the decay of a creation that was made good. How far it had fallen from 
God's original design. But he also knows that this is not the end of the story. Remove the stone. Lazarus, come out. And he does. As the dead man came out, his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And the narrative continues with verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people then the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. As they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should be reported that they might arrest him. The plot thickens. There are so many interesting aspects to this narrative in the final part of the 11th chapter. I love how once again we see how dividing, how divisive Jesus is. You're either for him or against him. There is no middle ground. 
Many of the Jews who had come had seen what Jesus did and put their faith in him. What would you do if you were among them? If you knew Lazarus or Mary and Martha and you were there and you watched Lazarus die, to see Jesus come on the scene and bring him back to life. I think, actually, it'd be a little unnerving. Joy, gratitude, a little bit of fear. Who is he? Why is he here? And many of the people, because of what Jesus did, they believed in him. But not everyone. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Another example of no good turn uh, goes unpunished. I can believe what this guy did this time. What are you going to do? And they, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was effectively the Supreme Court of the day. The Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. If you want, the, 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 uh, the political and religious conservatives and liberals of the day, the Pharisees representing the conservatives, the Sadducees representing the liberals. How interesting that Jesus has the power to unite even the left and the right. What are we accomplishing? Here's a man performing many miraculous signs. <laughs> if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh my gosh, terrible thing. And I found myself looking at that, wondering who these people are. Heroes and villains. Who are they? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish. I have to ask myself, what in the world is going on here? And these are educated men. Ostensibly, they know their history. What are they afraid of? The whole comment, we got to stop this guy who's doing all these miracles. This is not good. How is that not good? Who's the villain? Who's the hero? The plot thickens.
If we let him go on, pretty much everybody's going to believe in him. What? Believe in him as the Messiah? How terrible would that be? But is that really what's at issue? Or is there something else going on here? If they believe, then the Romans will come in and wipe out the nation. Now, there was a, there was a tenuous relationship with the Roman government at that time. Rome, Rome, they were not stupid. When they went in and conquered an area, they would allow some local government because they knew that that was a good way to keep the peace in the region. As long as the, as long as the local government knew that it was Rome who was really in charge and you paid your annual tribute. You could pretty much do what you want to do within limits. And they did. But now they are worried that if Jesus is identified as the Messiah, that there's going to be uh, an insurrection. Now, remember, their understanding of Messiah was that of a political leader. There was not yet a sense in their hearts and minds of why Jesus was there. Oh, they were longing for the Messiah, or were they? Who would deliver them from political oppression, or were they? But see, Jesus understands that physical oppression is secondary to spiritual oppression. And that until we are freed from the bondage of sin, we will only exchange one political bondage for another. The oppressors who rise up become the oppressed. We see that through history. So they're worried that if Jesus is proclaimed as the Messiah, that people are going to say, okay, now as the Messiah, we want you to lead us into a resurrection against Rome, and the Romans are going to squash us like a bug. Can't have that happen. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading this, wait a minute. Don't, don't you remember what God did with Joseph? And how he raised him up without a shot to become the leader second only under Pharaoh of all of Egypt, enabling his family to survive the famine. Don't you remember that? Or, or, or what about Gideon? God calls Gideon the least of his tribe to deliver the people, and Gideon doesn't want to do it. But he's finally convinced through a series of fleeces that he lays before the Lord that God wants him to do this, and so he musters the troops. And 32,000 people showed up. And what did God say? Eh, I don't think so. That's, that's too many people. 
because you're going to be victorious, but if you go out there and you're victorious with 32,000 people, you're going to think you did it on your own. Now, it's too many people. We're going to scale back a little bit. Everybody that's nervous or afraid, go home. 20,000 people left. Now we're down to 10. That's still too many. Anybody know how many people Gideon actually went into battle with? 300. 300. And they were victorious. Why were they victorious? Because of God. God is the hero of their story. Or what about when they, what about when they take Jericho? One of the most unorthodox battle plans you will ever find in Scripture. I want you just to march around the city and then go home. Do that seven days. On the seventh day, go around seven times and then blow your horns. And they were victorious. Why? Because God was the hero. And then when they, when they, when they, when they first go in to, 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 to take the promised land, two out of the 12 spies said, yeah, come on, let's go. But 10 were able to convince the nation of Israel to hold back, causing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Who's the hero and who's the villain? Or what about David? When he goes up against Goliath, the scripture is filled with stories of God fighting on behalf of the nation of Israel. Somebody once said, you and God are always a majority. And yet, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other C's are freaking out because if Jesus is who he claims to be and leads a resurrection, they're fearful that the Romans are going to come in and squash them. And I just shake my head, especially when you read the rest of it, the rest of that passage there, when one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Does he know what he's saying? No. I don't think he knows what he's saying. You know what I think he is? I think he's a pragmatist. I think he's looking at this very pragmatically. And I don't think his faith enters into the discussion at all, even though he has all the trappings of office. I just don't see the, I just don't see the faith there. But what I do see is a man that has all the trappings of office who has the respect of the community, even the ear of the community. The E.F. Hutton of his day, if you will. Some of you know that reference. I know I'm getting old. You know nothing at all. 
We take this one guy out, we survive. It is better for one man to die than for us to lose the nation. It is more practical. We need to be practical here, people. We need to live to fight another day. As it would, find, as it would come to be, that other day would happen in about 35 more years. And then the Romans would come in and Jerusalem would be leveled. 70 AD, it was all over. Who's the hero and who's the villain? Somebody was asking a question. As we talk about persecution in the church, why don't we see persecution here in the United States like we see it in other parts of the world? Part of the answer to that is that we were founded as a nation by a group of people who were fleeing religious persecution and they wanted to set up and establish a government where people had that freedom. That's only part of the reason. And it's an important part. But I think the other reason is we have become very adept at avoiding conflict. We're very pragmatic. And there is growing hostility against Christians in this country. Now, we're a far cry from being rounded up and fed to the lions. But it is, it's happening. And, the, and the, 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 the thought is that we just need to keep our heads down. We, we, we have been told that we can believe whatever we want to believe, but to keep it private. You can do whatever you want for this one hour on Sunday morning, but your ideas, your views are really not welcome in the public square anymore. And so for some believers, they circle the wagons. And we're going to kind of stay put and wait for this to pass. Is that what God calls us to do? The same God that raised Jesus from the dead, the same God that was with David that slew Goliath, the same God that was with Gideon when he defeated the, the Midianites with 300 people, that's the same God that we worship today. And I'm not saying that we need to go looking for conflict either. Because we know that there are a group of extremists that are doing just that. And I've, as I shared with some people just yesterday, they are proclaiming an apologetic, which is a defense for their faith, a faith that is not founded in Scripture. And that hurts the causes of Christ. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And know why it matters. But we also need to be ready to give people an answer for the reason of the hope that, has, that is within us with gentleness and respect. We've not done that well. And when we've not done that well, when we have sought to avoid uh, a conflict for the sake of, of practicality and, and, and just to keep our heads down, I wonder at that time in our story, are we the villain or are we the hero? 
I guess it all depends on who the real hero of your life story is. Because our life is story. It's a series of stories. And they're good stories for the most part. Sometimes we're the hero and sometimes we're the villain. And it takes wisdom and discernment to know which is which. And the plot is thickening around us. And the conflict is growing. But there is resolution. There is hope. As I've said this many times, I've read the end of the book. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But the church needs to stand firm, understanding who its hero is. And I'm going to tell you what, it is an adventure in kingdom living as we come together as biblically literate people who are seeking a closer walk with Jesus and a transformed life will be the best apologetic that we can offer the world as it spins out of control. Pray with me. Thank you for listening to Island Recast. For more information, please go to gmpc.org. Life in the kingdom of God is an adventure. Amen. And it is a story that is still being written. Sometimes we're villains. Sometimes we're heroes but we're always forgiven. Let us rejoice in the grace of God as we move into this Thanksgiving weekend and commit ourselves to the story that God has given to us that we might engage with respect, that we might win the world for Christ. Amen?